Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Mr. Michael Powell. Does it work? Work? Work all right? Good. I made one or two notes, but I hope I won't need them. <laughs> Making film is an art. And so, if you want to make good films, you have to trust one another. This is sometimes, in fact, frequently forgotten in the progress of the film industry. And really, since the time I came in, in the 20s, and the time I should be going out very shortly. <laughs> there hasn't been a great deal of improvement. <laughs> there have been wonderful things done. And somehow, uh, it goes back like a wave and starts all over again. Part of the trouble was history. This century belongs to films. Films are a kind of folklore, a new folklore, and this century is full of film folklore. Well, that's endless. The material that is there is endless. But what has happened is the films have become so technical the people have rather forgotten how to tell a, a good story simply. For instance, before the war, you see, uh, films were first silent, then gradually sound crept in. First of all, people were quite satisfied to have a camera photographing an orchestra playing. Later on, it occurred to somebody that they might like a story like that too. So, right up to the time of the Second World War, first silent and then talkie films came in, and so everything had to be readjusted to that. Then came the war, which in England gave me and other makers of films in England their, their chance to, to really say something that they believed in. But in America, it went on until you had to drop everything and win the war, which America did in record time. One of the great miracles of this century. But then Hollywood, of course, had also plunged into the war. And then it had, for 10 years after that, it had to keep on patting itself on the back and telling what, what had been done. Then, during that time, of course, nobody noticed that Sparascorus had crept up behind with a sandbag, which turned out to be uh, a cinemascope. And then all these new things like cinemascope, VistaVision, were, were being invented. And all these things were highly depressing to people who uh, were artists and could tell a story without, without necessarily saying it had to be elongated. Or <laughs> Well, the people all had to be there. <laughs> and so in movies, more and more we were getting mixed up. We plotted on, 
and uh, particularly in England, of course, because there's room to plod in England. <laughs> no room here. Uh, and uh, I haven't said a word about Hollywood, have I? I'm talking about films. I don't care where the film is made. I've just seen this magnificent uh, exhibition of all these German directors and actors, you know, who, who were exiled and, first of all, had created one of the first very great centers of filmmaking, which was full of creative activity and full of love and excitement and that sort of thing. And this is necessary for making good films. And I, I've got a feeling that this uh, is approaching again. I suppose it will depend a good deal upon critics and writers and writers on films, but uh, I get a feeling that a good time is coming again, and then they'll think of something else to, uh, uh, to torpedo it. Uh, ah, but we'll see. I, I should be in the next century by then. <laughs> and uh, so I, I made one or two notes about this little film you're going to see. Uh, after Emmerich Pressburger and I broke up our partnership, which had lasted for 20 films, imagine it. I think it's a record, but, but partnership of that kind, collaboration of that kind, is very rare. And of course, one of the reasons that has held films back, because to collaborate properly with your partner, first of all, you have to be very generous, and second, you have to be very jealous. You conquer the jealousy, and then you can be generous. <laughs> so I worked with Emmerich Pressburger, who was a Hungarian Jew and a wonderful man, and a born dramatic writer. And Alex Corder brought us together, and as soon as I heard him expound on the spine black, take an awful script, turn it inside out, explain what was wrong with it, drop about half the story, because there was far too much story. You can't have too much story. And I thought to myself, this is the man I've been looking for. And so we, after that, we made literally, count them, 20 films together. But then, uh, gradually, we, various reasons, uh, domestic reasons, some of them, love, hate, uh, gradually we drifted apart and we decided, we never quarreled, we decided not to make uh, any more films together, which of course was silly anyway, because we did. But we, we, didn't, we didn't make them any longer as, a, as a, a team, a creative team. And, and, and so sometimes the, the love was lacking. And I can assure you that love is essential in making a film. Uh, in this little film here, Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I scribbled down a few names. A lot of them had worked with, with me before. But first of all, of course, comes the writer. Leo Marx had never had a feature film made before. He was a r remarkable little demon. His, fa his father had a very famous bookshop in Charing Cross Road. They made a film about it. Do you remember the something Charing Cross Road? Hmm. Well, that was his, his father, and he's furious about that because he didn't make any money out of it. 
And but he he was sent unto me by another producer. You see, uh, friendship, love. Uh, this chap too was called Danny Angel. It was a very good name. And so I was, looked on him as my guardian angel because he said, "Have a look at this fellow. I know you're looking for somebody now that you and Emery can no longer together." And he's been doing some work for us on codes. I, I think it was a, a story about the uh, French underground and the war. Virginia McKenna carve her name with pride or some ridiculous title like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, he said, see this man because uh, he's crazy and so are you and you might get on. So, uh, duly, uh, Leo Marx turned up in my apartment, uh, smoking a cigar, just taking the band off it, and uh, looking very uh, like a code himself. He was very dark and secretive, and uh, spoke very gently like that. He still does, if you talk to him on the telephone, it's like that. And, <laughs> And so uh, we discussed several ideas. He wanted to make a double agent story, naturally, because he'd been head of a coding department all through the war, and he knew an awful lot of very good and very dirty stories. <laughs> and I said, I'm not interested in secret service and codes and this sort of thing. What about a film about Freud? Because by now I'd sized him up, you know. And <laughs> So we worked on that for a couple of weeks, conferencing, and suddenly we heard John Houston announce that he was going to make a film about Freud. What on earth John was up to, I can't imagine. Uh, anyway, he did make it. Let's pass over there. And, and I had to find a new one. And by this time, Leo Marx had been watching me for some time at various meetings and with other people. And this morning he said to me, Mr. Powell, how would you like to make a film about a young man who photographs the women he kills? I said, oh, yes. <laughs> I said, that, that's me. <laughs> it's a great idea, let's go. He said, well, how do we go about it, Mr. Powell? I said, you, well, you've probably got the idea in your head now. Why don't you come on twice a week and bring me what you've written? We'll go over it and talk about it and evolve the script that way together. And uh, you, you'll write without me bothering you in the room. And uh, that, that should work. So that's what we did. Every uh, evening at nine o'clock, uh, he would turn up uh, uh, twice a week at my apartment smoking this new cigar and uh, I think he wore a hat too, and and always very formal, and always with very good ideas and very good stuff. I said, there's too much dialogue. He said, Mr. Powell, you can't tell a story without dialogue. I said, oh yes, I can. And uh, if you write these long dialogue scenes, you'll find they're on the cutting room floor. And. Uh, he said, well, uh, we, no doubt we can compromise. <laughs> so we completed the script and we were rather pleased with ourselves. Uh, it's more or less the script of the film we're going to see. And uh, I, I took it to Anglo Amalgamated, a little firm, uh, run delightfully by two delightful fellows called Nat Cohen and Stuart Levy. 
And uh, Nat Cohen was very keen on it. And I said to him, what do you think of Lawrence Harvey for the young man in the story? Oh, that'd be great, can you get him? I said, well, yes, he's working next door in the studio at Shepparton, and uh, he's just finishing up the film. He's making a room at the top, and uh, he, I've told him about this, and he wants to do it. Oh, well, if you get Lawrence Harvey, and, and then I've got some terrible blonde floozy. I've forgotten who she was. Uh, anyway, he didn't say that, of course. He said, I've got a lovely young girl uh, <laughs> for the other part. I said, well, I don't know, that, that girl's 21, you know, and uh, I wouldn't like to play a girl who wasn't 21 and wasn't like a girl who, who feels like 21. And uh, also, I don't care about her looking wonderful. Uh, it's up here I want it. Oh, well, if you get Lawrence Harvey, etc. And uh, so then suddenly, Lawrence Harvey came into my stage from his stage, and I say, Mickey, they're crazy about my film. They've seen all the rushes in Hollywood. I've got an offer to play opposite Elizabeth Taylor in Butterfly, Butterfield? Butterfield 8, that's right. And he said, and what's more, they want to sign me up. I'll play with all the Hollywood leading ladies. Because they haven't had a new leading man to play with or, or go to bed with uh, for a long time. I said, well, can't you do it first? Larry, I mean, do the film first and then the rest of the program. <laughs> but he wouldn't, and I don't blame him. He had, got, got to grab a chance I have when it comes. So uh, then I had to find somebody, and uh, at a party I ran into Carl Böhm, who was a young Austrian, the son of Carl Böhm, the great conductor. And he wanted to be a conductor too, but of course his father didn't like that idea very much. And so he, he was thinking of turning actor. And I had seen him in a big film in Austria uh, called City, S-I-S-S-I. -S -S -I. And then there was City Empress. Did you, any of you ever see it? You heard of it? Anyway, you ought to dig out some stuff on it. And uh, yes, Alan Delon was in it too. I remember seeing the film, people in England never see foreign films, so they didn't know about it. So I said to Nat Cohen, he said, everything going all right? I said, oh, everything's going splendidly. Oh, by the way, Lawrence Harvey can't be in the film. I've got Carl Heinz Berm instead. He said, who? I said, Carl Heinz Berm. He wasn't pleased about that at all. And I said, well, he's very good, very sensitive. I'm sure he can play the part. And what's more, he understands the part. And I like him, and he likes me. And uh, got over that hurdle for a bit. But everything went on like this for a long time. They always had a reason for not letting us play together. And if we're not playing together, we, how, how the hell are we going to make a good film? And uh, for instance, uh, Otto Heller, was one of the great cameramen, and I'd always wanted to work with him. He, he shot this film. And Jerry Turpin was his, uh, his operator. Now, one thing you must remember if you're ever going to make a film yourself, an operator's job is to keep the actor and keep the story as right as the middle of the picture, if not in the middle, at least as close up as you possibly can. And this boy, Jerry Turpin, was a genius at it. He would follow the story right into the mouth of the actor and out the other side. <laughs> you know, no question of the camera staying here and the actor moving around. If the actor moved, the camera was ahead of him. 
He was a genius. And Otto Heller was one of the great old men of the cinema. He'd been a producer in the silent days. He and Annie Ondra, who played the blonde girl in Hitchcock's Blackmail, the first English talkie, uh, they had a company together. Annie Ondra, charming girl, lovely blonde, like Hitchcock loved all, all his life. And uh, she, she, she was a beautiful girl. And uh, the, the, she was Czech, I think. It must have been Czech. Andrakova, she was Czech. It didn't matter in those days what, what you were, of course, and it doesn't matter today, does it? But uh, you'd think the way people talk, it does. Is that too complicated? No, not sure, not sure. Uh, anyway, I, I had this wonderful operator and this wonderful cameraman who understood exactly what to leave out. That's the great secret in making films. You know. You've got everything there, then leave most of it out. And, uh, well, there were several more people. Brian Easdale, who did the music for the Red Shoes, and, uh, and uh, also he did uh, Black Narcissus, which I understand you've seen recently. Wonderful composer. Uh, he said, oh, piano, piano all the way through. It must be piano because of the, 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 the camera and the projector all the time turning, 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 and I can do that with the piano. So he did it with the piano. I said, well, at the end, I want a bang-up finish. He said, oh, you want a bang-up finish? He said, a real old bang-up finish, full orchestra and everything. Oh, fine. So he was in. And the point is that this film was good because we all loved doing it and we all understood what the other one wanted and we all cared what the other one wanted. And I can assure you that is very rare in the film business. I mean, even when Martin Scorsese, who I think is a great friend of mine, who I think is a great director and gets the rights of the people around him, you know, he, he can't always get that, you know, that, that, and that time and that feeling and the, the sureness that all the people around him are loving him and knowing exactly what he's trying, trying to get. And I'll talk about that afterwards. How about the film, huh? I haven't seen it for a long while. Bit too much. I'm glad you liked it. Now that was a film that was made with love by everybody. And yet, when it was shown to the critics, they hated it. They didn't just think it was unnecessary to make it. They just loathed it. <laughs> and they couldn't say why. But they killed it. They killed it for 20 years. I made that, I think I made it about 30 years ago. Get to my age and I don't know whether, what time is it? And I think it was about 30 years ago. And Carl and I, 
just two dreamers, we came to the premiere in London, dinner jackets, black tie, and saw it together with all the everybody, special critics invitation people. And they all came out afterwards and passed by us and never nobody spoke to us, just like in the movies. And the press came out the next day saying what a terrible, disgusting, loathsome piece of shit. <laughs> For God's sake, wash it down the toilet, take it off. They use language like that. And I was just dazed. I had no idea the critics were so innocent. They're supposed to tell us what we should be doing. I wouldn't like them to think what they thought I should have been doing instead. Nobody would want to see it. And so I said to the distributor, little Nat Cohen, look, let's do what somebody did years and years ago when they made a film out of a Broadway play, Mother God Damn. It all took place in an house, and that was a bit new then. And I said, let's take space in all the papers and say, this is what the critics say about this, this unbelievable abuse. Come yourself and judge for yourselves. Keep the film running. It'll do, because we all love each other, you see. We should have loved that distributor, I realize that now. He certainly didn't love us. <laughs> so, but they wouldn't do it. They took it off that night, they yanked it. And it was booked already for uh, all around the country and they probably made about 50 prints. Uh, by the way, this is a 16 mil print tonight. It was very good, I thought it was. Uh, but there must be quite a lot of good 35 prints knocking about in England. Because they, they took it out of the circuit, they took it out of release, and uh, Anglo Amalgamated sold it to somebody for t television and showed it in black and white here. And it took me a long time later on when I had the chance, and with the help of Martin Scorsese, we discovered where the negative was and what sort of state it was in, and saved it. That's it. Can we take some questions? Mm. Are there any questions? Yes? Was that your voice reading uh, from his father's book? Yeah. And that was my son, the little boy. You see, I thought, well, pretty far out for say to somebody what we were casting for, and my son thought it was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only way to do it, really. Only way to do any horror film, I think. And how many of your films did Mara Shearer? 
Well, she was in Tales of Hoffman, of course, wonderful, and that. Uh, we just got a, a new colour print on it, a new colour color neg in England. And you, you'll be seeing it here, I think, fairly soon. It had its premiere in America at the opera, the old Met. And, uh, but uh, at that time, I think it only had a limited release here. And she was wonderful in that. She did the dancing doll and she did the girl at the end. And the, the most wonderful thing in uh, the Tales of Hoffman was Thomas Beecher made an arrangement of the music of the first act. I wanted to have a ballet for Maura. And we had a seven or eight minute ballet. Uh, we called it the Dragonfly Ballet. It was about two dragonflies, the girl and the, and the man. The man was Edmond Audron, who was the husband of Ludmilla Turina. He was a very good dancer, French. And Maura, I've never seen her dance so wonderfully as the... Uh, as the dragonfly in there. And then, of course, she was in uh, Red Shoes. How's that for a piece of underplaying? <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is there any chance they'll ever re release a 35 millimeter print of uh, Matter of Life and Death or uh, Stay with Heaven? Oh, I, I don't know. Who knows these days? You know? uh, uh, for years we've been making films. When I started, first of all, they told us the life of a film was a couple of years or most, three, and then it, was, it would all be cut up negative and positive and used for mandolin picks. Uh, that was the first 10, 10, 15 years of films. Then later on they said, well, maybe there'll be some markets for some, we'll keep a lot of the prints, a lot of the negatives they didn't keep. A lot of prints they didn't keep. And uh, then the war came. Uh, the, the Americans were producing at that time, uh, oh, I think you were doing four, five, 500 pictures uh, a year. Astonishing time. And uh, w w then when the war came, it was something new, and then uh, meanwhile, of course, the television had come. And there was continually something new to occupy uh, the money boy's attention, uh, which is one of the reasons why you get such bloody awful films uh, uh, during that time. All the attention and all the money went on what you were doing and wh what you were making, and, and uh, that's still going on, of course, but it's a little bit better now. And I've got a feeling that there might be just time to squeeze in a little bit of a renaissance where people love films and make them because they want to make them and because they love the story. And uh, but yeah, then, of course, it'll all come around again. It's wonderful, this century. You're awfully lucky to be living in this century. Sometimes when I look back and think that Actually, I fell in love with making films when I was about nine years old. And look at me, I'm 83 now. Can't believe it. <laughs> Mrs. Powell, I, want, uh, since I have the last question, I'll, I'll take advantage of it to say that on behalf of all of us, you, you've uh, given us a very, very special time, and, and we thank you. As great as all your wonderful films have been, very quickly, how was it that directors such as yourself, who knew that you were making art and, and the love that went into it, 
how it was that you never were able to uh, collect and, and, and save for, for posterity mm. in some special way for yourself and, and for, for us? Well, thanks for the... <laughs> We have done a good deal about it. You see, uh, I came in just the right time, and I, I knew this was the art for me. I knew this was the life for me. And uh, as I can't make films anymore, uh, I'm writing about them. And uh, I, I published the first volume of my autobiography. The idea is to show what happens to somebody who's devoted entirely to this new art. And uh, in the end, I hope it'll be two, uh, three volume. Uh, the second volume I'm just finishing now. And uh, I've already written uh, the last chapter. <laughs> and, uh, and then the third volume would be all artifacts and music and budgets and schedules and things like that. Exactly doing what you say, gathering together all this experience into one place. Uh, it's always been the curse of the film business, and particularly in England. Here, at least, there was some uh, big markets and a certain amount of money available, looking after negatives and looking after prints. But uh, in England, uh, Emily Pressburger and I were practically the only small company who were looking after their negatives and prints and uh, and watching very carefully uh, what happened to our pictures. And because we were just lucky enough to start just before the war. And uh, so uh, a lot of people went available, a lot of people went back to America. And so I, I had all this... Uh, uh, really be sacred belief in the work we were doing. At least uh, ten of our films now are under our more or less direct uh, control. And uh, that's why with the help of the British Film Institute uh, we've got, got some new negatives being done of the colour films and things like that. And uh, But it, it should be, of course, uh, automatic uh, for, for a great company to do that. And uh, I'm very glad you, you brought it up. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.